Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you uh, for this Christmas season, for, for a season of giving thanks, and then a season to celebrate your coming, uh, uh, putting on flesh and entering into our world to come and to save us. And Lord, I just ask as we open your word, as we read familiar stories, uh, that your Holy Spirit would work on each of our hearts to help us to wonder, to see the miraculous for what it is. Be with us, Lord. Shannon, we pray. Amen. One of my most embarrassing habits in all of the world is that I reread the same really three or four series of books every single year. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, it's The Hobbit, it's Lord of the Rings, it's the Harry Potter series and Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and I do this every single year. My mom's sitting here nodding because she knows that all of my copies of the Harry Potter books are absolutely uh, falling apart because they've been read so many times. Uh, my brother is a librarian and he uh, cares about books very much. And he's, he's told me, hey, and I've, I've done this, you have to start reading this on a Kindle or something because like, you've, you've ruined these, like absolutely ruined them. So I heeded his advice and have done that. And there's a couple of reasons that I do this. Uh, one, they're, they're just good stories and I enjoy them. But they're so familiar to me that I start to, to immerse myself in them and I don't have to pay attention. As I read them, I always read them at night as I'm trying to fall asleep. And it's just something that I can passively engage with. And I don't have to like, focus on what I'm reading because I already know the story. I don't have to really pay attention because I know the characters. I know the plot. I know what's going on. And, and by saying that, really what I mean is it's really easy for me to go to sleep to them. The, the other reason uh, that, I, that I read these is because they are stories that I really connect with and truly love. And to prove to you that I read other books than those, uh, this is a quote from Tim Keller in his book, Hidden Christmas. It says, uh, the great fairy tales and legends, they, they did not really happen, of course. They are not factually true. And yet they seem to fulfill a set of longings in the human heart. That realistic fiction can never touch or satisfy. That is because deep in the human heart, there are desires to experience the supernatural, to escape death, to know love that we can never lose, to not age, but love long enough to realize our creative dreams, to fly, to communicate with non-human beings, to triumph over evil. Even though we know that factually the stories didn't happen, our hearts long for these things. And a well-told story momentarily satisfies these desires, scratching the terrible itch. And, and what I, what I want to look at today is that we, we have a story here in the Christmas story that is true. A story that, that not only scratches the itch to fulfill these desires inside of us that these fairy tales and fables lead us to, but this is an actually true story that engages the desires of our hearts, that satisfies and fulfills us in a way that we, can, we can't even fathom the depth. can't even fathom how great it actually is. So as Abby read, what's called the Annunciation or, or Announcement as Gabriel comes to Mary, a story that I'm sure that we're all familiar with, a story that we hear every year as I reread these books every year, I know the story. I want us to come into this season, in this Advent season of looking at the book of Luke with a fresh perspective, an opportunity to read something afresh, anew, and be able to dwell on this miraculous season. Not as just something we do because it's, it's Advent and Christmas is coming up, so I guess we should just read these things and, yeah, whatever. But as an opportunity to be awed. Because God, the Almighty, is putting on skin and he's moving into our neighborhood. He is coming in to live life with us 
and for us so that we can become truly alive again. You see, we're, we're made for stories. God has been writing a story throughout time since the very beginning. Uh, you might have heard there's a, a picture that gets put up sometimes in here of this, this meta narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. That's the big story of Scripture. Uh, and from, from creation onward, God's mission, the, the story that He's writing hasn't changed. Like God, since the very beginning, has desired to cultivate and create a dwelling place for Himself to dwell with His people. From the very beginning in the garden, that's the point. God desires to be with his people. And unfortunately, because of Adam's failure, sin enters in, and the story changes a little bit. The fall, sin. God goes on this great rescue mission for us. His desire to be with us, to be dwelling with his people hasn't changed, but the story is a little different because now he has to enter in to enable us to be brought back to him. And the cool thing about God's story is that it's not just something that he's doing. It's that he graciously invites us in to what he's up to. And we see that in the story with Mary. You see, God does, it's not always what we expect. It's not always how we would write the story. But God invites us in and he invites Mary in here. So if we look at Mary here in this passage, uh, we learn a couple of things. First is that she's betrothed, which means she's engaged to be married to Joseph. And we think of engagement as something that can be, you know, oh, well, they're, they're preparing to get married, and the engagement can end, and they're not going to get married. There's not really a promise there. But in, uh, in first century Israel, it would have been a binding legal process. So the way it worked is uh, the groom would come to the bride's father, and they would agree to a bride price, pay the price, and then there would be a year of engagement, of preparation, uh, until the wedding. But it was legally binding. So we read uh, in Matthew where, you know, Joseph's been told about Mary's pregnancy, and it says that he, uh, he, he's going to divorce her quietly. So engagement is not marriage. They're not married. They're not living together. But there's still a commitment level there. It's binding where it has to be broken by divorce. Uh, the other thing we learn here uh, because of the engagement is that she's probably a young teenager. We're talking 13, 14, 15 years old. So she's young. She's engaged. She's likely poor. We know that she's from Nazareth, which if you read uh, in, in John chapter 1, as Nathaniel uh, is telling Philip that he's found Jesus, the Messiah, uh, Philip asked, or Nathaniel asked Philip, he said, hey, can anything good come from Nazareth? So this is a nowhere nothing town uh, with apparently nobody nothing people. It makes me think, so I'm from South Georgia, and it makes me think of this little town called Tai Tai. The city's so nice they named it twice. When I was in college, uh, I worked for uh, UGA. They had an, uh, an experiment station in South Georgia. And I would go, and, and you know, the, the, our office was in town. And then we'd have to get in the truck and drive 20 minutes to Tai Tai to go to the cotton fields. Like, there's nothing going on out there. If you say you're from Tai Tai, it's like, oh, you're a farmer. Like, there's really nothing. Peanuts, cotton fields, and that's it. And that's kind of how I think of Nazareth. It's like, there's not really much going on there. It's not a booming metropolis. It's not the, you know, the main thoroughfare. It's not a, a great big place. It's kind of the middle of nowhere with nothing much going on. So from all indicators, Mary's life would not be extraordinary. Uh, she should have you know, married humbly, uh, given birth to norm numerous poor children, never really traveled farther than a few miles outside of home, uh, and one day die like thousands others before her a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. 
But God chooses to use people like Mary in his story. See, put yourself in your shoes, in her shoes, excuse me. Uh, just this teen girl from this nobody, nothing town, and all of a sudden, an angel appears to you. And this is where a moment where I think our familiarity with the story really hinders us. We read this and we just kind of gloss over it. It's like, oh yeah, you know, Gabriel's there, that's cool. But Gabriel is only one of two named angels in the Bible. And frankly, each of his other appearances, which is to Daniel and then to Mary's relative, Zechariah, uh, it's, it says uh, in Zechariah's account in Luke chapter 1, it says that uh, it troubled him and that fear fell upon him. A grown man is trembling and fearful in response to this angel's appearance. And for Mary, as a teen girl, like imagine yourself in her shoes as an angel appears to you. And we read it, it's like, and Gabriel showed up and he said these things and it was great. But the visceral response of Mary had to have been fear. It had to have been awe and wonder. As she looks on this heavenly being talking to her by name, I I can't imagine the depth of emotion she was feeling, the trembling, the me of it all. You see, God's grace here is what, what really flips the script. Mary, the nobody nothing from a nothing town, is called O Favored One. By the angel. And the word here uh, is, is actually charis, which is Greek for grace. So when we read, O favored one, really it's like, hey, God's grace has been bestowed upon you. God thinks highly of you. For students in here that come to Tuesday morning Bible study, uh, we ask kind of four questions every week uh, for the last three years. And they may not realize this or not, but what it is is catechism. And so we're, we're trying to drill in some of the realities of the gospel. And so we asked things like, what, what is the gospel? And they would say, the good news. Thank you, Ava. What's the good news? That Christ Jesus died for my sins. Why did Christ Jesus die for your sins? So that I may have abundant life with him both now and forever. And then the last question that I love so much is, what is grace? God's love for undeserving sinners. So Gabriel here, and it's his first proclamation to Mary. He's like, hey, Mary, greetings, O favored one. You have found favor with God because of his grace. God here inviting this, this poor, lowly teenage girl, not even married yet, into the story that he is writing because of his grace. If we're honest and we're writing the story, we wouldn't choose Mary. If I'm writing this story, I'm not going to the nobody-nothing town and picking the, the, the lowly teenage girl who's not even married yet to carry the Savior into the world. Like, that's not how I write it. I'm going to the biggest, baddest family of them all. Like, if there's a mafia family in Nazareth, I'm going to the mafia family. Like, I want who's got money and who's got power because that's who's got influence, and that's where I'm going. But you see, what Mary, God's choice of Mary here shows us It reveals so much about God's character. That the gospel is not just for the rich and the powerful, but it's for the lowly, for the downtrodden. It reminds me of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mounts, where we read about the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 2 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And as we read throughout all of Scripture, God's story is full of him using people that are weak and lowly 
for his own purposes, that he is the one that is acting. Think about King David. And, and as we read uh, about, about the prophet Samuel choosing, anointing him as the next king of Israel, like he goes through all of David's brothers. Like his dad is like, yeah, this one's big and strong and mighty. Like he's the guy, right? And Samuel's like, no, not him. And he goes through every single brother until Jesse's like, well, David's kind of the runt of the litter. Like he's the smallest. He's, he's a shepherd boy. He's not really that impressive. But that is the one that God chooses to anoint as his king, David, the least impressive of all the brothers. Because God chooses to use what is weak and lowly in his story to bring greatness to his name. The next thing we see in this story uh, is that that God uh, gives great gifts. You see, Gabriel here in his message to Mary tells her, like, hey, I know you're not married. I know you're a virgin, but you're going to have a son. And his name is going to be Jesus. He says that Jesus is going to be great. He says that he's the son of the Most High. Later on, he calls him the son of God. And that he's of the line of David. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's fulfilling God's covenant with King David that we read about in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He says that God, or God promises to David that he will establish his throne forever. And we read in Matthew 1, like that's why we read about the genealogy of Jesus. That his lineage traces back to David through Joseph. Like so much of the promises of the Old Testament are built upon this, this line of David. That in Genesis chapter 3, we read of, of the, this, this promised seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. This is the one that has been hoped for in all of Israel. We read the prophecies about Jesus that we look back on now and say, oh, that's Jesus. That's him. But as the, the Old Testament people are hearing these things, they're looking for him. They're like, where is he? This is the guy we need. But Jesus doesn't come as the, the mighty conqueror they were expecting. He doesn't come from the king. He doesn't come from Herod. He doesn't come as this, this conquering hero, the white horse, the sword out, ready to vanquish the enemy. But he comes to lowly Mary in a lowly stable to a lowly people. Because God's kingdom doesn't work the way that we think it should. God's kingdom turns things upside down where the lowly become great. And what Gabriel tells Mary here is, hey, Jesus is the promised one. Jesus is the one who will sit on the throne forever and ever. He says that of his kingdom, there will be no end. And then finally, we come uh, to God's promise. How he comes through on his promises. Mary appropriately asks the question. She's doing the math. She's taking an Italian. She's like, hey, this is all great, but you realize I'm not married yet? You realize, like, I'm a virgin? This doesn't really work that way? And so Gabriel tells her that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon her and that the Most High, his power will overshadow you. Which reminds me of, of Genesis chapter 1 where, where the Spirit is hovering over the waters and God, through the Spirit, brings life where there is none. In his creative acts. In the same way, he comes and overshadows Mary and brings life where there is none. In verse 37, is this really powerful and bold statement that Gabriel tells Mary. He says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary, 
being confronted with the reality of, of scandal, with the reality of, of, of a, a husband that she's engaged to, divorcing her, with the reality of walking around her hometown, with everybody whispering, did you, did you hear about Mary? Like, that kid right there, like, that's the one. And, and she's, she's but, but how, but how? And he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. There's another story of a miraculous birth in Genesis chapter 18 that echoes this sentiment where Sarah, who, who laughs at God at the prospect of in her old age, bearing a child, bearing a promised child, where the same sentiment is expressed. Like, can, can God really do this? Is this really possible? But nothing is impossible with God. And to prove it, Gabriel talks about Mary's relative Elizabeth, who, like Sarah, is, an old, is old. She's not of child chartering years. And, and that she has conceived a son. John the Baptist coming to prepare the way for the Lord. And this, like, if you don't think this is possible, like, your relative Elizabeth is pregnant right now in the sixth month of her pregnancy. Like, God can do it. Because nothing is impossible with him. And I think we can, we can learn so much uh, from Mary's response here. At the end of verse 38, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Like, Mary doesn't start arguing with Gabriel. Like, no, no, no. Like, it can't be me. Like, you gotta, got the wrong girl. This isn't for me. She doesn't say that, but I'm just lowly, that I, I can't do this. But how much can we learn from Mary's response that I am a servant of the Lord? That she, she understands the gracious opportunity she has, that God has enlisted her into his story. And instead of arguing about it and trying to scheme up ways to get out of it or, or the uncomfortableness of it, like I said, she's facing all kinds of scandal because of this. She doesn't say, not me, but she says, I am a servant of the Lord. Like, how different would our walks be with the Lord if we had that same attitude of humility to be like, but, but I'm just a servant of the Lord. God, wherever you're calling me, this is your will that is being done. This is your story that is being written. And it, thank you for, for giving me an opportunity to step into it. I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. When I think about the life of Jesus, I'm struck by the scene in the garden as Jesus is facing down the cross, there, to the point, like he's stressed, that he's, he's sweating blood at, at the turmoil he's facing. And I'm struck by his prayer of, not my will, Father, but yours. He's asking for this cup to be taken from him, for the God's wrath not to be poured out on him. But he says, not my will, but yours. The humility of Mary, the humility of Jesus uh, shows us so much of what walking with God is like that he takes the lowly and through humiliation exalts them. Jesus drinks the cup of wrath. Jesus dies on the cross, pays the wages of our sins, rises again, and is exalted to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And because of that sacrifice, we too are brought into the family of God. When you put your faith in Christ, you become identified with him. 
when you put yourself under Christ's rule and law and order. You become identified with him so that you may be exalted with him in the last day. And it's not anything that we do, but it's completely here because of what Jesus has done by putting on skin, by coming and living a perfect life, to experiencing life exactly how we do. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4 talks about that, that he, he passed through this life without sin. Like he knows exactly what you're experiencing. He knows the temptations you face. He knows how hard it is because he walked here on this earth. He lived this life. Yet he lived it perfectly so that he can be the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. He can pay the wages for our sins. And I'm so astounded at how blandly we read his entering into the world. So as I close, think about this Christmas season. And I challenge you to not just look at this as like, well, you know, here we are again. It's Advent. We'll do our calendar. We'll, do, we'll, we'll kind of sprinkle in some Jesus stuff into this because it is about him, but I'm more worried about the trees. And I challenge you to give this a fresh look, to read the story with the awe and wonder. I've been really struck. Uh, I'm not a Christmas person. Like Santa Claus, Christmas trees, decorations, not my thing. I have been so blown away the last couple of years as my four-year-old experiences with joy and wonder. The, like, oh, dad, let's go look at Christmas lights. Like, let's drive around. Like, I don't want to go home. I want to go look at Christmas lights. And the joy and the wonder and the awe that is there. And I challenge you to have some joy, some awe and wonder. Because Jesus coming into the world is a miracle. It's a miracle we get to celebrate every year. And let's not read it blandly. Let's not read it like we're going to bed, like I read all those books. But it's the truth of the gospel message that God is here to save. The king is here, and we can rejoice and be glad. Let me pray for us. Lord, I ask that you would, you would give, us, uh, give us wonder, give us, give us hope. Renew the wonder and awe like a child as we approach Christmas. As we, we prepare for your coming in this Advent season, that you would fight against familiarity, that you would fight against blandness, but help us to, to read things and to experience things with the awe and wonder like a child. And Lord, thank you that you chose to enter this world, to come to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, and to be raised again so that we might have new life in you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.